Welcome to Off The Bench with Benny Jones. And welcome to Off The Bench, pre-Christmas edition of the program where we look back on some of our favourite chats through the week and looking at some of the big sporting results from across the globe. Uh, Also, a Makita Power Player nomination, and we'll catch up with Sammy Highland as well to get the latest ahead of another big weekend in Queensland racing. Benny Jones, my name. Great to have your company. Hope you're surviving this uh, pre-Christmas madness, getting all the shopping done and all the last-minute preparations to what is a wonderful time of the year. And it's a big one for sports fans as well. No shortage of great sports to enjoy. But we're going to kickstart with a little walk down memory lane. Badge and Sats caught up with one of the great players and coaches in rugby league's recent history. He played at the Bulldogs and the Knights and then had a very, very successful stint as coach of the Knights. Also ended up coaching his state, Queensland, as well. Michael Hagen. It was a two-part interview. We're going to focus in on part two. And this was the coaching component of Hague's career. Take a listen. John. High ball. Tahu's after it, ball bounces, came off Tahu, and he grabs the ball. Damana Tahu has scored. He points to the spot, it is a try. Jamie Lyons kick to the touch. There's the hoot up. Newcastle have won it. Newcastle are the Premiers. Second time in history. 30 points to 24. That was a, it was an amazing time for you, mate, I'm sure. What are the memories? Yeah, it was, um, it's, it's probably getting on for nearly 20 years ago, Badge and such, which is nearly hard to uh, <laughs> comprehend because it, it all sort of happened um, so quickly. And I guess, um, you know, I went into the, the head coaching role at a pretty young age, maybe 35, or more than one of the younger head coaches, certainly back then. And, um, you know, we had a tremendous year and, and we had a really good group of players. Um, you know, of course, Andrew Johns was, was captain, but we had a, a number of players um, at a high level. Ben Kennedy, of course, that, that played in that team. Steve Simpson, Danny Badiris, Tamana Tahu, Adam McDougall, Mark Hughes, Billy Peden, um, to name a few. And I think we, you know, we certainly uh, were underdogs in the game against Parramatta, but we had a lot of confidence and a lot of belief in the way uh, we prepared and how we were going to play, and um, you know we certainly came out with a, a great first half performance and, and went on to win the game. And you know the, the celebrations at the stadium, and then at the stadium when we got back to Newcastle, sort of three in the morning, and the, the street parades and stuff. And I know Badge, you'll you've been through that and Sats as well uh, in regional towns like Canberra and Penrith. But it's um, you know a tremendous thing to be involved in, and, and the Newcastle fans and, and up in the Hunter Valley, you know probably the most passionate and uh, uh, some great times to be to be around footy. Yeah, they party hard, don't they? And mm-hmm. that Parramatta side of that year in 01, Higgs, as we know, they broke every record before them. They got to grand final day. They looked a little bit startled, but they were a little bit more startled at half time when it was 24-0. And you just alluded to that, that you got off to a great start. What What's the message to your team when you're leading by 24-0? Well, well, I do remember my um, assistant coach, uh, Barney Miller, sort of just grabbing me to make sure that we didn't overload the team with too much info and, and just to try and keep it all pretty calm and I think that was uh, really good advice but I guess the, the, the difficulty with that was I think the halftime break was about 18 minutes if you think about grand finals and, and origin games but the halftime break is always longer yeah. uh, so it, it takes a bit of discipline not to feel like you need to say something and, and go a bit uh, over the top but in the end we had some good senior players including um, you know Billy Peden and Andrew Johnson who were the, 
appointed captains and Ben Kennedy and Matt Parsons. So, you know, they seem to keep things pretty calm. Matt Gilley, of course, in the centres. Mark Hughes had played in the 97 grand final. Robbie O'Davis was another. So, you know, we had enough uh, senior players. We also had uh, Clinton O'Brien on the bench, Glennie Green, Paul Marquette. You know, they'd all been around the block more than once. And uh, Daniel Abraham was, was a young kid on the rise. So, uh, they kept their cool, and um, and we snuck home by a couple in the end. Now, coaching Joey Johns, many may think it makes your coaching job a little bit easier. Does it make it your coaching job simpler in a in a in a simple way, I suppose? But can it also be challenging that you're you're coaching against a player that basically is once in a lifetime player? Uh, he's certainly given me some more grey hairs than, <laughs> I, than I planned on. Uh, trying to look after him in Newcastle, um, and you know he was just a a tremendous player um, for the Knights and for New South Wales and the Kangaroos. You know, we were very fortunate, very thankful um, to have him. You know, and he played his career uh, in in Knights colours the whole way through. And you know, I think myself and uh, other coaches and other players that you know got to work with him and around him certainly appreciate uh, how how brilliant he was. In, not only in I guess the way he played, but his attention to detail around how he trained, um, how he contributed to team meetings, um, you know, really good around the team in terms of team spirit and making sure that we all, uh, you know, spent plenty of time together. So, you know, he had all those attributes and qualities that, that you want to see in a, you know, a good footy player and, and, you know, it was always good fun to be around. So I, I think we certainly saw the best of him around that sort of 2000 or about 2003 or four. Um, you know, won a couple of Dally M medals along the way and um, he won a, a couple of premierships with the Knights so, and maybe could have won another one or two. I know 2002 he got injured in the semi-final against the Dragons uh, that year so you know, we maybe come up one mm. short really uh, given his talent and given uh, the, the sort of talent he had around him at the time. So, so you're one of the very few first year coaches to win a comp but it's not like you just had jumped into coaching, Hayes. you you did your apprenticeship um, at, at Canberra, didn't you, under 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 Mal or in the lower grades? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's um, you know that's something that that I look back on now. I mean, that's when Mal and I sort of started working together back in '98 in Canberra. Uh, so you know, Mal and I helped each other uh, back then. And, and I mean, Mal hadn't really coached uh, at first grade level prior to that appointment either. So I, I guess we both had the L plates on to some degree, but we'd also been coached and worked with a lot of good coaches. You know, Tim Sheens, of course, I mean, had a lot of influence now. Uh, Wayne Bennett, um, you know, talked about, um, of course, um, Phil Gould and Warren Ryan. So I think uh, Alan McMahon, I, I certainly learned a lot from him, David Waite. So I think you learn from all those coaches and then you've got to try and, you know, understand the process and then put yourself into that week-to-week sort of scenario. And, it, and it's tough. And, I mean, that's, you know, that's why the... The coaching gig is um, you're under so much pressure and why uh, in the end I probably only lasted maybe eight or ten years in, in a full-time role because it, it takes so much out of you. Yeah, you were pretty burned out, weren't you? I know that, Hags. And when you finished it at Parramatta in, was it 2008? It was, uh, yep. How challenging was that Was that gig with, uh, you know, the likes of Jared Hain there? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was a couple of things, mate. One is, um, you know, it probably rolled from... You know, 2004, 2005, trying to coach Queensland and the Knights at the same time, which, again, you know, I appreciated the opportunity to coach Queensland. But And if we look at it in hindsight and you look at, you know, Graham Murray tried to coach New South Wales uh, while coaching against John Thurston. Um, um, Craig Bellamy trying to coach against the likes of Cameron Smith, Billy Slater, Cooper Cronk, uh, 
when he was mm. coaching Melbourne. It doesn't really make sense. And I think I was certainly in the same scenario with Andrew Johns, Danny Badiris, Steve Simpson, Ben Kennedy, Adam McDougall, Tamana Tahu playing for New South Wales at that time. Um, and it just sort of, yeah, probably took a bit more out of me than I realised. And then You didn't give away enough Parramatta. secrets about, about your club players, mate. That was the problem. Yeah, Boys well, I don't think it would have mattered too much because, you know, Joey had a, a pretty <laughs> yeah. fair uh, arsenal of went all right. to go to. And, and they were nearly at the peak of their powers. And, Dad, you were involved around that time as an assistant coach. I mean, I think, you know, they had... I think Brad Fittler came back in 2004 and helped them win that series. And Andrew Johns came back in in 2005. And, yeah. you know, they had that real nucleus of, of good players, you know, uh, for a number of years. And then, of course, Queensland, uh, the, the tide turned and, you know, we saw all those champion Queensland players come in over time and uh, and the rest, as they say, is history. But, um, yeah, it took a bit out of me. And then the Parramatta scenario was also one where um, my wife Sue and the girls were sort of uh, living at Redhead and I was uh, backwards and forwards on the freeway and, and I wouldn't recommend that to anyone uh, <laughs> to do that for too long. I did that for a couple of years and, and in the end I ended up uh, tired, cranky and uh, I was also not well. I ended up uh, being diagnosed with prostate cancer at about 44, I think it was. Oh, so that's right. I needed to get a few things sorted. I've had a 10-year review only in the last month and uh, my results from the treatment I've had have been fantastic and I'm a, a real good candidate for the treatment I had and uh, I'm, I'm thankful that the health and the uh, well-being is pretty good at the moment. Well, you took a fair bit of stress out of your life, as, as you alluded to, mm-hmm. Hags, but uh, you're still still involved at, at an assistant coach capacity with Mal at origin level as well. And again, in some really a really good period of, for, for Queensland, it was it taking that assistant coaching role, just having that pressure taken off you, was, is it sort of the, the perfect coaching role in a sense that you're not the head coach, you don't have all the pressure on you, but you can sit back and, and really dissect your opposition and work with your players individually? Yeah, and I think you can really enjoy it, and I think that's something that, um, and and I think it also means that you you understand where your strengths lie, and I, and I think Mal, as a head coach, absolutely uh, understands the bigger picture part of Origin and Test footy, and I think that's really important, and, and you can see where it needs to go and what the team needs to look like. But then, for me, I can just sort of work on the on the nuts and bolts and, and some of the key parts of of the game in, in attack and defence and, and Mal and I have worked well together for a long time and Trevor Gilmeister of course and Alfie Langer and a whole host of others that have been um, you know, fortunate to be around that champion team uh, in the Queensland era for what 8 or 10 or 11 years and, and now again with, with the Test team for the last 4 years and we've seen a real changing in the guard with you know Cameron Smith uh, Cooper Cronk, Jonathan Thurston Billy Slater, Greg Inglis, Matty Scott sort of all moving on mm-hmm. uh, from the Test arena so there's a real good uh, opportunity at the moment to see you know, a number of young players. I think nine players have come in the last two years uh, into the Kangaroos program. And, and I know Mal's thinking about an Ashes uh, tour to England uh, next year and then maybe a World Cup in England 2021. So it's been a real um, refreshing sort of change. And we've seen you know, a whole host of, of young New South Wales players come in and they've been tremendous to work with. And I think you know um, Australia will be in, in pretty good hands for a a long while to come, and New South Wales have certainly got themselves into a strong position from an origin point of view. So, uh, you know, those cycles sort of come and go, and I think, you know, Freddie Fittler's done a great job with New South Wales, like Mal did with Queensland, and yeah, has similar yes. uh, sort of approach to the game, and, and you know, made some tough decisions this year around um, their performance from Game 1, and, and, and he got it right for Game 2, and I think Mal and, and Freddie both have a good feel for the game, and they know uh, what their team 
represents and, and how it should look. And uh, and I think that's, you know, again, I've really enjoyed working around uh, those high-level players and, and they're all uh, great people and they, they all want to do well and they want to be successful. Hayes, before we let you go, I'm always intrigued with coaches and former players about players they've played with or players they've coached that have had a that always have this, uh, I suppose, this, this leave a really good image and a really good reflection from when you coached them or played with them. Is there one player, and let's take the legends that you've coached with, you know, your Kennedys and your Johnses and your Badiruses, all those players, but is there one co- player, I should say, that you've coached over time that just stands out as a player that has flown under the radar but just everything was perfect about him as, a, as a, the way that he trained, the way that he prepared for games? Is there one player? Yeah, I reckon, you know, taking... Um Andrew Johns, of course, and I've talked about him, and Danny Badiris was tremendous, and, and you know they were both uh, fantastic for a long time. But but the, the player that that really stood out for me, and, and I I think was a real eight out of ten type player, week in week out, um, low maintenance, tough as they come, uh, played at a high level, played for New South Wales, Australia, Steve Simpson. So mm. he sort of typifies the Newcastle sort of hard running back rower in. And played a bit of front row too when I needed him to, and, and never complained. Always played above his weight. Always played tough, and, and very rarely had a bad game. So I'll, I'll certainly put Simo in uh, in that high level for me. Yeah, good on you, Hags. Hey, listen, we uh, we haven't got much time left. It's been great talking to you, and you've always, you know, you've been at the forefront of the game as a player and as a coach, and now as an assistant coach. It's great to have you still involved, and the game keeps changing. And next year we're going to have twenty forties. We're probably going to have a captain's challenge. Are we heading in the right direction, mate? Is everything looking good for the uh, for the NRL and the future of our game? Yeah, I think it is. But, I mean, personally, we don't need to change too much about our game. I mean, it's, it's a tremendous game in its current format. I think we need to keep it really simple for for everybody. And, I mean, that includes the officials, the players and the coaches, where I think our biggest danger is we seem to complicate things and, and we miss you know the obvious things that, that we've got to get right. So... Um, you yeah, know, that would be my advice to um, Greenberg and or uh, not Brian Kahneman. We've got a new um, Graham Annesley as the operations mm. manager for the football department. I mean, I think we've just got to get the simple things right. And I think the fans and the players and, and the coaches will, will be able to wear that. Yeah, no doubt at all. Mick Hagen, thanks very much, mate, for joining us on Sports Day. Always a pleasure catching up with you. Good on you, boys. Good to talk to you. Michael Hagen there, a former Bulldog and Knight and also a very accomplished rugby league coach as well. Quick break here on Off the Bench. When we return, what a night it was in Brisbane for the Horn v Zarafa Mark II bout. One of the all-time greats, and there to give us his insight was Ben Damon from Fox Sports. All things boxing expert is he, and we will hear from him right after this. You are listening to Off the Bench. This is Off the Bench. We'll be back right after this. You're listening to Off The Bench, right around Australia. Yeah, welcome back to the program as we have a little look back on some of our fun chats through the week, uh, the big sporting moments, and I don't know if there will be many bigger for the remainder of this week and maybe the remainder of 2019 than in Brisbane on Wednesday night. Jeff Horn, Michael Zarafa, they got back in the ring to renew acquaintances after Zarafa's shock win in Bendigo back in August. It was a chance for Jeff Horn to exact some revenge, and to keep his career alive. Well, he did that and some. It was a bruising, bloodied encounter, and covering it for Fox Sports, and a huge part of all things boxing in this country is Ben Damon. He was good enough to join us on Sports Day 
the night after the fight that really had everyone talking. He's in so much trouble here. Still got 40 seconds to go. And pushing forward and trying to eat this clock and get through this horrendous night round. And whose uh, voice you could hear during that call is uh, is on the line now with us. Thanks for joining us. Benny Damon on Sports Day. Yeah, g'day, fellas. A little bit huskier today. Um, <laughs> going with everything in that call, but, gee, you couldn't give it as much as what Jeff Horn and Michael Zarafa did. That was a phenomenal sporting moment and one of the best fights that we've ever seen in Australia. Certainly the best fight that I've ever had the pleasure of calling. And, um, yeah, I just can't quite believe what I saw. Where did you... I mean, the opening round, so I was there myself, Benny, and watching it. Where did you see that, that Horn was different from the first fight? Oh, he's so much more energetic, and um, his movement patterns need him to be just like that. So if he's going to be doing that ducking in, ducking out, and going again like he does, he needs to do it with really good bounce, really good rhythm, and, and really good energy. And the first time around, um, he had that for moments, but he didn't sustain it through the fight. But you could see even early on in this fight, last night that he was able to use his energy and get inside and throw his big shots and his jab was decisive as well so he was clearly fitter he was clearly stronger and he was clearly better prepared for this fight so it was a very different Jeff Horn we sort of knew that throughout the preparation we definitely knew it on weigh-in day the way that he looked and the way that he was acting but we couldn't be sure until round one and through the first half of that fight at least uh, he was pretty dominant he got through with a lot more shots than Michael Zarafa and worked a lot harder and he was well Outside of the shots themselves, what I found most noticeable, Benny, in those early rounds was how he overwhelmed Zarafa physically, the elbows and leading him with the head and, and leaning on him as well, which we know takes a lot out of the opposition fighter, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And he was also punching on the break a lot. He was punching when they were clinching. Um, he was doing a lot of um, sort of pushing of that line between uh, legality and illegality in boxing. But um, sort of that's how it works a bit. And then mm. obviously with Jeff Horn, there's always cuts. And that came really early in this fight, in the first round, in fact. It turned out to be a decisive cut because of what happened with it in round nine as well. But, um, yeah, he was really wanting to make this a rough fight with Michael Zarafa. I think he saw that as his advantage because Zarafa is a slick boxer and if you can keep him close to you, you're going to be okay. But if he stays away and keeps you on the end of his punches, then you're going to be in strife. So Jeff Horn had a plan and that was to use those usual movement patterns but also to really rough him up. And um, he had a great deal of success with it and that's what allowed him to be in such a dominant position before we got to that dreaded round nine. Yeah, well, I wonder if will ever underestimate Jeff Horn again because he went in as a rank outsider uh, mm. on the back of that that loss to Zarafa in August. Take us through round nine. Um, I, I've quizzed Sats, who's the boxing expert in this room. Um, was was Did the referee do the right thing by stopping to check Jeff Horn's cut? Well, the way that round nine played out was that Michael Zarafa was 
filled with energy. He saw his moment. His corner told him to go for it, and he did exactly that. And just like we saw in round nine in Bendigo, he was able to pick him off with right hands, and he was throwing some huge shots as well. Jeff Horn was in a world of strife, and he was bouncing around the ring, but somehow he didn't go down. So as that cut, which he'd had from round one, started to open up further due to the right hands that were being thrown in round nine, and it did open a lot further. I spoke to the cut man after the fight, Stephen Edwards, and he said, yeah, it probably opened up another inch or two. So mm-hmm. it was getting sustained damage during round nine. And the referee had three options, essentially. He could wait and see what happened and see if Michael Zarafa could find the big punch to eventually get Jeff Horn down and maybe finish the fight. Or he could jump in and say, no, he's had enough and stop the fight and say, uh, that's a referee stoppage. Or his third option was to look at that cut and say, maybe that cut is bad enough to stop it. I should check with the doctor. And he took the third option. He said to the doctor, all right, have a look. Do you want to stop the fight? And the doctor said, no, I think he can continue to go. But obviously what that did was get Jeff Horn out of trouble just momentarily. So there's a Rafa camp. Fair enough. They're bluing about that. But um, the fact of the matter is that the referee has that at his discretion. So whether he made a wrong call or not, he... Um, he certainly did affect the rhythm of Michael Zarafa, but very soon after that, what we saw is Jeff Horn had had just a moment to recover and was still very groggy and still bleeding and still battered. He sat down on that right hand and produced a punch from the gods and dropped <laughs> Michael Zarafa in the most incredible fashion you can possibly imagine. So he um, had his moment, he got his breath, and then he had to dig deep into his soul and pull out that shot, and Zarafa somehow got up from it. and. Uh, he went down again and then Horn could have finished him off with a third knockdown but as it turned out it was a shove and we got through round nine and it's uh, no doubt the best round that we've seen in Australian boxing this year and the best round I think that would have been seen anywhere in the world in boxing this year. Do you want to see a trilogy or do you think Jeff Horn will go down to super welterweight and have his eyes on Tim Zoo. Well, we could see a trilogy back at Super Welterweight. Um, we could yeah. see certainly um, Jeff Horn go into a super fight with Tim Zoo, which would be at Super Welterweight as well. But I think one thing is for sure, Jeff Horn's not a middleweight and we won't see him at middleweight again, at least for the short term of his career. If he finishes back up there for some reason, for some big fight, then fair enough. But no, he'll be going down. So if there's going to be a trilogy, it would have to be back down at Super Welterweight, which would be a very compelling fight. And back down at that weight, you'd imagine that Jeff Horn, after what he did in Brisbane, goes in a pretty heavy favourite. But um, yeah, Tim Zhu is another huge option. He's done massive things in Australian boxing through the course of this year. Obviously a very famous name. He's headlining on main event. He's had three pay-per-view headline performances so far and four fights through the course of 2019. Um, there's other options as well internationally. I know they're talking about Patrick Tixira, who has the WBO Super Welterweight World title as being a potential opponent they could bring here to Australia to fight against Jeff Horn. I know that's someone Tim Zhu would like to fight as well. So that could come down to which government they could get the most money out of. Uh, I know Kate Jones, the uh, minister, was at the fights last night. I had a chat with her and she was very excited. She was saying, maybe we can go back to Suncorp at some point. So, you know, (laughs) there's just a buzz around Australian boxing at the moment. And it really had um, the cherry put on top of it with that phenomenal fight last night. And whatever is next for Jeff Horn and for Tim Zhu and even for Michael Zarafa, it's going to be extremely compelling. Yeah, well, it was an amazing night uh, when it comes to on the sporting calendar for 2019. It was a tremendous effort by Jeff Horn and also Michael Zarafa. It was very humble in defeat. So Ben Damon there from Fox Sports, boxing expert. What a night. Will there be a third? 
Yeah, I think it's just a matter of time until that gets announced. Let's get a Racing Queensland update as we catch up with Sammy Highland. Time for a Racing Queensland update. Summer Carnival, visit racingqueensland.com.au. And the Grand Prix stakes this Saturday at Eagle Farm going to be huge. Details, you can find them at racingqueensland.com.au. Might get a few details off this gentleman right now. In fact, Sammy Highland joins us on Sports Day. Uh, Welcome, Sammy. Benny, pumped. Looking forward to a uh, summer carnival that's uh, continuing to to give us plenty of highlights and we've got some great racing this weekend. And we're kicking it off with a a cracker as far as the two-year-olds are concerned. Yeah, that's right. This race is going to give us a, a good guide to the Magic Millions with horses like Lady Bamp, Got a Kiss, the drinks cart, they're all engaged in this race. So it's a good competitive field. I'm going with Got a Kiss. You can get her at $3.20 on the tab. She's drawn the perfect gate in barrier one. She's going to park just in behind the speed. I think she'll be too sharp for them on the way home. She's got plenty of upside about her. And, uh, yeah, I think she can get another win on the board. All right, the feature race arrives in race number five. Sam, tell us all about it. Chris Munz, he trains a really nice stayer in this race. Uh, it's called Smart Meteor, and uh, you can get him $7 on the tab. I tell you what, he was impressive last start, winning at, at Doomben. He went from 1300 at Toowoomba to the 2000 at Doomben, and he handled it like it was a walk in the park. So the 2200 in the Grand Prix is not going to be a problem for him. I think he'll be no problems at the trip. He'll... he'll as long as he just relaxes nicely, gets a sweet run, gee, he'll be strong on the way home for Justin Huxtable. Uh, I think he can give him a big win in the Grand Prix. All right, and we'll wrap up with a look at race eight, which is a listed race. Looks to be really competitive field too, Sam. Yeah, the Favlon quality, it's a, it's a good race, this. And the horse to be on here, Benny, is Spurcraft. Leslie Babatilli is the pilot. You can get it $2.70 on the tab. This horse was a good winner first up in the Bribey Handicap. And from gate three on Saturday, he's going to jump, lead, win. And you know what they say, Benny? Don't be silly. Back Babatilli. This horse will <laughs> deliver Spurcraft. Love it. Your summer racing is all online at racingqueensland.com.au. Sammy Highland, thank you for your week again. We will uh, catch up with you next Tuesday to see how it all played out, but enjoy the weekend's racing. Thanks, buddy. You're listening to Off The Bench, right around Australia. It's time to nominate the Makita Power Player, Makita's cordless power garden range, the landscaper's choice. Yeah, time to talk all things Makita Power Player when power means business and for their power garden range, Makita, the number one in the business. Make sure you check them out and maybe just a little hint there towards Christmas. If you're struggling for an item for dad or someone around the house that loves to get their hands dirty, the do-it-yourselfer, Head to Makita and uh, you'll find the perfect gift, I've got no doubt. Uh, We're going to give this one uh, to Josh Phillippe. Now, the Big Bash is back and we're all excited about that. I think it's something like 41 matches of cricket over the next 40 nights. Brilliant stuff. Can't wait uh, for a lot of those double headers, big weekends, and, of course, pushing towards the finals, which will now be in a top five format. But we got a little glimpse as to why it is going to be an exciting summer on Wednesday night. Josh Phillippe of the Sydney Sixers, wicketkeeper batsman, opened up, taking on the Perth Scorchers, small target to chase. He made it look even smaller as he smacked 81 or 50-odd deliveries. But it was the way he finished the game that stood out. As uh, the site just cruising to victory, he thought, let's do it in style by dispatching one onto the roof of the lady stand at the SCG. Take a listen. Oh, the biggest of the night. It's on the roof. Bang, there it goes. 
been a batting masterclass in T20 format from Josh Phillippe. Yeah, so there he goes, Josh Phillippe. It takes you back to, I think, Mark Ward did it at Perth one day. Simon O'Donnell might have also repeated the dose. You don't see many land on the roof. That was a monster hit from Josh Phillippe, just one of many in a masterful innings of 81 not out. He gets our Makita Power Player of the Week, and it's all thanks to Makita and their cordless power garden range, which is the landscaper's choice. We'll take a quick break here on Off the Bench. When we come back, Mark Hayes from Golf Australia. Gee, it feels like a lifetime ago now, doesn't it? But the President's Cup, how good an event was that? Hazy will give us his two cents worth as Tiger roared into action and as the captain of the American team once again claimed the President's Cup trophy. That's next here on Off the Bench. This is Off the Bench. We'll be back right after this. You're listening to Off the Bench, right around Australia. Yeah, welcome back to the program. Benny Jones with you as we look to wrap up our last edition of Off the Bench prior to a a little mini Christmas break. We will be back next Friday, though, on the eve of 2020. Uh, New Year just swings around and we'll be looking back on some of our favourite moments in 2019 in sport, of which there have been plenty. And I think this one would probably make many people's lists. The President's Cup, Royal Melbourne. What a beautiful-looking golf course and some beautiful golf was played by both the Internationals and Team USA. And, uh, boy, they're a hard egg to crack, aren't they? The Americans, they've dominated this tournament over many, many years. They were staring down the barrel on the final day. An amazing comeback led by Tiger Woods, and they once again claimed the President's Cup. Mark Hayes from Golf Australia. Well, he's a golfing fanatic. He was in paradise over the four days at Royal Melbourne. We spoke with him in the wash-up to the Prez Cup and get his thoughts on who aimed up, who failed to deliver, and just why this event was such a massive success. Thanks, boys. Yeah, I'm, I apologise for my voice. I've got a bit of Cam Smith-itis. <laughs> uh, I, I yelled my guts out yesterday, yeah. so apologies. Um, yeah, it was. It was, it was epic. Uh, it's just, I, I'll probably use this word a few times if we talk for a couple of minutes. I, find, I found it pretty gut-wrenching, to be honest with you. So, um, yeah, it, it lived up to all the hype, the hope, probably, more than the hype hmm. and, and a bit more because it had villains, it had great golf, it had storylines, it had a great course, it had um, the world's greatest player, you know, kicking butt. Uh, it had everything. You name it, it had it. And it actually, you know, it, I wasn't sure that it would, but it did sort of transcend golf and pop out into, you know, mainstream awesome sport. So it was really good. I had a couple of mates down there, Hazy. Uh, the crowds were just incredible, weren't they? He said he's never seen anything like it at a golf tournament. Can you compare it to anything else? Well, I was there when Tiger was playing uh, at the Australian Masters at Kingston Heath in 2009, and I thought that was pretty big, and it was. It was a circus, um, but it was all uh, you know, very Tiger-centric. Um, this time, it was for, there were more people, and it was wider spread because there were, you know, four always and up to nine or ten great matches on course at any one time. So uh, there was so much more, I think, on offer. Um, the course is awesome, boys. It, it, yeah. it, it's one of the world's great courses um, it, for so many reasons, not least of which is it's logistically capable of handling 30,000 people every day. And, and it did that. Um, and the atmosphere was just immense. Mm. Was that was that course part of the reasons that the uh, the US team got off to a slow start? Was it was it jet lag? Uh, you know what? Why why do you think the um, the internationals were just out of the blocks as as good as they uh, as good as they were on day one? 
Yeah, probably a, a combination of reasons. I think the um, Ernie Alves, full credit to him for everything he did through the week. It was really instructive to me yesterday to hear Adam Scott say that he'd learned so much about tactics and, and other things to do with team events that he'd never known until he got into a camp with Ernie Alves. So I think Ernie had him ready to rumble, which was one reason. No doubt the Americans were uh, a little jet-lagged early in the week and got better in all aspects as it went on. Uh, but I think that they're just not used to playing on courses that have that bounce and fire. Um, the greens were very fast without being ridiculous, but the bounce factor on them, they're just not used to shooting away from flags. And it just takes a little bit of time to uh, to realise that if you play splat golf, which is what Mike Clayton calls it, um, <laughs> you know, you just dial up a number, hit that distance and the ball lands there and stays. They realised after a couple of sessions that, you know, there were some holes you just couldn't get to near the pin. Um, I think Ernie else said it best. He said, the flag uh, is the destination, not the target. Yeah. So you had to shoot away to try and get the ball closer. Uh, and they figured that out as the week went on, there's no doubt. And that, look, on any given week, any given day, they're going to win that, those, those singles matches. They're more highly ranked players than what, what the international team can put on the paddock. So... Yeah, <laughs> it's just an opportunity that slipped by, and that's why I mentioned the word gut-wrenching. Mm. Hazy, did you see a change in momentum? Was there a turning point on Saturday afternoon where you thought, leading into Sunday, they've got all the momentum? Um, I think it didn't really occur to me that it was a problem on Saturday. Uh, I think when there were, two, there were two standout things for me during the week where, in hindsight, it was lost. One was yesterday when... Uh, Hideki Matsuyama seeded a four-point lead and, and had a half with Tony Finau. Uh, that was critical. Mm. Um, further down the batting order, Louis Eustazen had a three-up lead against Matt Kuchar and did the same thing. Mm. And they're two matches that we had to have. Uh, say we, because I'm biased as hell. <laughs> um, <laughs> we, had to ha- we had to have them, um, especially when the leads were so uh, pronounced early on. But further back, if I look back at it on late on the second afternoon when we already had a 4-1 lead from the Thursday four ball when we were playing foursomes and we had them on the rack in at least four and maybe the fifth match was sort of teetering on the brink for a while and Tiger Woods wriggled them off the hook. Um, the Americans charged back in, in four of those matches in the last half hour and managed to, uh, I think it was halve that session from memory, when they were really looking down the barrel of being nine one, maybe mm. maybe eight and a half, one and a half mm. down, and that's to me where it was lost in that sort of half hour to an hour period late on day two. So the halves always sort of seem a bit blah to talk about. They don't sort of seem critical, but when you look back now, the things that the Americans were able to do and just wrestle a couple of half points here and there on those occasions, they're the things that have split on a sixteen fourteen result. They're critical. Now, he's always coming with a lot of pressure, wasn't he? Patrick Reed from, uh, was it Bahamas the yep. week before? And everyone has to play the villain. Oh, I didn't mind it uh, at some stage when we saw Patrick Reed taunting the fans by using the digging motion as he, <laughs> as he walked off one of the greens. What do you think of it? Uh, I normally respect all your guys' opinions. <laughs> I can't have him and I can't, I can't have you either. I, 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 can understand I, sat in the press, I sat in the press conference with him on... Wednesday, when he, I was literally a metre and a half from him, and he came out all smug, and there were there were 
80 journos in the room and 70 of them went to him at the expense of all the other great players in the team. Yeah. Uh, and it was like he, he's sitting there smugly smiling and and loving the attention and the, the sort of adulation. That's the wrong word, but you know what I'm getting at. And um, he, to me, he just flat out lied for five or six minutes. And I actually walked away after three or four because it was everything I had not to sort of say, you know, are you kidding me? So mm-hmm. uh, I just thought that... I like the villain aspect, as you mentioned. And I, I love the fact that he's happy to play the, the clown on course. I've got no problem with any of that whatsoever. I've still got a huge problem with him uh, flaunting the rules of golf. Um, to me, he's really flagrantly in the Bahamas. And then it's for his caddy to get in a, an altercation of some description on, fr- on Saturday afternoon, this escalated the whole thing to a whole new level. And whatever, uh, whatever media around the world was pondering whether it was fair dink and really suddenly bought in and it was just this massive tidal wave of questions and, and interest from around the world which is probably a good thing but um how it's generated and by who it's generated you know sort of i don't know i'm, I'm, I'm undecided on that because he's obviously played a great part in the promotion of it but i think mm. he's a bit of a knob to be honest with you <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah i'm with you now hazy before we let you go if you had to pick a player of the tournament if they did give that award away who would have it been over the four days well, I did on our podcast inside the ropes. Um, I actually gave the three votes uh, like a you know like a footy match. So I ended up giving one vote to Cameron Smith because I thought he was true to himself, great entertainment for the crowds on and off the course, and the way he took down the world number four yesterday in singles was absolutely epic. From being three down, and that's why my voice is toast because I was raw <laughs> <on> at <his> home. <laughs> I gave two votes to Sungjae Im from Korea, who's a major champion in the waiting for sure. He's just an absolute jet, 21 years of age. <laughs> I said afterwards that if you were going back and looking for draft picks to rebuild your franchise, he's the guy you'd build your franchise around. So he's a star for the international team in the future. And I gave three to Tiger, who yep. I've knocked publicly before, probably with you guys too, but. Um, he showed me why he's the best player, um, arguably of all time, definitely of the modern era. He was head and shoulders above the rest of them. And they, the, you know, as we said, the 23 other players there are just superstars in their own yeah. right. And he, 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 he controlled his ball. He flew it high. He bumped it low. He had all the shots. And he's just the master of, uh, you know, controlling the situation. And that's something that's out of the reach of mere mortals. So he got my three votes. Team USA, 16, the Internationals, 14. Mark Hayes, we're going to let you have a couple of weeks off over Christian New Year because it's been a a massive 2019. The last week has been sort of magnifying all of that. And and as the last little statement and, I guess, legacy of what this uh, 2019 President's Cup will leave us with for for Royal Melbourne, for hackers around the world who may not have ever heard of it and have seen it on the uh, global coverage, I imagine it's going to be a reasonable boom for tourism to this part of the world, isn't it? Yeah, and, and the Victorian government poured in a truckload of money uh, into the event. Um, some rumours had it north of $25 million. So yeah. they they invested into it a lot of backroom infrastructure, thereby, uh, you know, on the telecast around the world, there were these unbelievable images um, of the state, particularly its golfing regions. And um, they also did a lot of um, travel familiars, they call them, for all the golf riders who were coming out here, and they're all today going out now some of them right now are playing royal melbourne and yeah. others have been flown to um king island etc so they're all sort of going to take back crazy stories about how good golf is in australia so that's a huge plus and the feedback that we had instantly through the tournament was royal melbourne looks you know 
world class. And then when Tiger backs that up and Ernie backs that up in press conferences, yep. it's like a little mini advertising campaign. So yeah. it was awesome for Australian golf. Mark Hayes joining us from Golf Australia. That'll do us for Off the Bench. Thanks for your company, not just tonight, but throughout the year to date. To you and your family and everyone associated who's listened to this program, we wish you a very Merry Christmas. Have a wonderful Boxing Day. Eat a lot, drink a little bit, and just enjoy being around family and friends. We'll see you next Friday for another edition of Off the Bench. We'll catch you then.